Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 118. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Massachusetts. And on the Life of School podcast, I sit down with fellow life science teachers and talk about uh, factors that influence our classroom. Uh, and on this episode, it's going to be a, just a group of three of us. Uh, we're going to introduce ourselves uh, using the question, what is the worst job you ever had? And for joining us first from Texas is Lee Ferguson. Hello, Lee. Hello. 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 So probably, I don't know, like, I guess it's not so much that it was the worst job. It's just my least favorite, you know, because I've, I've had the fortune to work some pretty cool jobs. Um, but probably telemarketer if I had to, if I had to, to pick because it was the first job I ever had. I was in high school you know, because I needed to make mm -hmm. gas money. And so as a telemarketer, I had to try and sell these plaques that like commemorated a kid's high school graduation <laughs> to parents. Yeah, it, it was pretty bad. Um, and, and of course, you know, I, 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 got a lot of rejections and that's how I learned to handle rejection. <laughs> and so, I mean, I learned something from that job and I learned also that I don't like talking on the phone. <laughs> and so it wasn't the worst job ever. I don't think I've had one yeah, of those yet. So, but not one I would, lucky. I would choose to, to pick up No. <laughs> oh no, I would not want to do it again. Mm -mm. <laughs> All right. And uh, joining us from Arizona is Tanea Hibbler. Welcome Tanea. Hey. Um, I also have had, um, a lot of different jobs. Mm -hmm. So, um, <laughs> any job, like any job can be a great job and any job can be a bad job, right? Depending on, I think who you're working with and the culture of the company or the office. <laughs> and so I don't want to speak bad on any particular, um, company, but I did, um, after I moved to Arizona, I quit my flight attendant job and, um, I was offered a job at AutoZone. Because uh, I think because I spoke Spanish and somebody had was like, oh, you have great customer service or whatever. And um, so I, I took his job as like a management trainee position, whatever. And I had to speak Spanish all the time. <laughs> so I was it was I was under a lot of pressure. And then it was like in the neighborhood where there was a lot of um, we had a lot of thefts that happened. So people might come in the store and like literally take a a heavy back car battery and run out with the battery oh like, my like an expensive battery. Right. And like, I'm not going to chase somebody down over a car battery. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm not getting killed over a car battery. And then we had a lot of cash paying customers. So we handled a ton of cash and I was always having to put money into the safe. And the, some of the people who had worked for the company for a long time had experienced being robbed at gunpoint. And so when I had to work late, I would always get worried about being robbed. And then some of the guys who worked uh, at that office were actually, they were, they were robbing from the company, the guys who I worked with. And oh my so, gosh. yeah. And so there was a, there was like a day where some of my, it was a really busy day and some high up managers came in with the police and like they arrested a couple of guys <laughs> who I'm working with. 
And I'm wow. like, and then on top of that, it was like sexist culture because, you know, it's a car. Mm-hmm. It's AutoZone, right? <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a very male dominated kind of space. Um, I was like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> like, either that or you got to you got to write oh a script for an FX series. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like honestly, I mean, but that, that's what led me to go back to school, get my master's degree and become a teacher. So it was a good push in the right direction. Yeah. It, it sounds either awful or a series that I want to binge. <laughs> like, like okay. <laughs> just FYI, I used to work at this hat company. You know, we make the beanie, the beanie hats where you put the hats, assemble the little hats together, mm-hmm. and you have the little spinny thing at the top. And that guy um, was. It was like in Berkeley, California, <laughs> and he like smoked a lot of weed. I think he might have been growing some weed in the back. I, I just I just had the key and I would go in the basement and assemble the hats. But one day I came to work and everybody who had been there like the day before it got arrested. Um, oh, my God. Because of like some weed stuff. So I was like, "Ooh, I'm really glad I didn't go to work that day because like I'm in school. I can't afford to be getting arrested and having drug charges um, anyway. So I've had some I've had some interesting jobs. I was going to say you have worked in some interesting places. Oh my, well, my my story is I I gotta learn to not go after Tanea. I gotta... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> my job was my job story is just boring. Like you know, I could I have some cool job stories, but man, you have both the cool and terrible job stories. So <laughs> yeah, so I mean, my my terrible one was I was gonna say like I I worked at a grocery store in college, and you know, basically it was like my high school job that I had. And it was, it was like an okay, like it's a working in a grocery store, like being a bagger, you know, working in a, a grocery store. That's fine when you're in high school, but there was something about when I was in college working at that grocery store, I, I did it for like just a couple of months and I don't know what it was about it, but working at the same place that you worked in high school when you go to college, cause I went to college in my hometown, there was just, there was just something so awful about it. It was like, it was I almost felt like it was preventing me from growing up. It's like. I'm not supposed to be doing this anymore. Um, and I hated it. Like, and I was, you know, I'm, I was always a pretty good employee and stuff like that. But um, it's like the first time I ever had a, a job that I like, you know, I used to just go and do my work and never really think about it. But it was the first time I was ever at a place going, God, I have to find someplace else to work. Like, this is not the right thing, which was good because I did leave and go find a, a good, legit college job, which I did enjoy and, and spent uh, my entire college career. And by the time I was done college, I didn't want to do that anymore. So that's, I think, you know, <laughs> have jobs that are appropriate. Um, but, oh man, I didn't, uh, I don't know if anyone got arrested. I'm sure some of those people got arrested. Uh, <laughs> 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 and it wasn't a college town. So, you know, we could talk about other substances. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, there's probably uh, lots of other recreational substances <laughs> that were you know, used and abused. When we have uh, time one day, I'll have to tell you some of the flight attendant stories, mm. like some, like the worst trip mm. ever stories, but oh, I'll gosh. save that for later. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's funny because I, I knew that you had done that and I was like, I wonder if that was the worst job, but nope, not even, didn't even make your, didn't make, didn't make your top two. Um, uh, all right. Well, this oh, is a, wow. the transition of asking about jobs is uh, we actually, in our uh, last episode, um, brought up the concept of teacher training and, um, I I depressed some of my uh, panelists when I pointed out that um, we've been teaching so long that, you know, Google didn't exist when a couple of us started. And um, 
<laughs> we've been doing this a long time, but, um, but I do still think I, I've worked as, myself as somebody who's done a lot of mentoring of young teachers, uh, throughout my career. And I've spent a lot of time with, uh, talking to first and second and third year teachers really for pretty much the second half of my career. Um, it's made up a big chunk of my, my professional time. And, and I've been looking for opportunities to start working with students, teachers. So I thought it'd be great to have a conversation where we, we flush that out a little bit more. And, um, I really do want to start with the idea of, um, you know, before we all started teaching, and I know it was a, a different time <laughs> and a different place, and, uh, you know, I, it's not the same today to become a, a teacher that it was, you know, in some of our case, two and a half decades ago, um, <laughs> in the case of Lee and, our, yes. Lee and myself. Uh, but I wanted, I was curious, like, how much time you spent um, you know, in a classroom or working with the students before you actually started teaching. So, so Lee, how about you? What what did you do before you became a teacher? How, how much time did you spend either in schools or with students? So I had actually started volunteering in a high school biology classroom in the town where I went to school. And um, I, I wish I could remember how I got started doing that. I don't remember if it was through my service fraternity mm -hmm. or if it was one of those things that I just sought out for myself, but I do remember working with this woman and she taught ninth grade bio at the high school. And, you know, I just really enjoyed doing stuff for her and working with her students. And so I had done that for a little bit before I started taking my um, teaching certification classes because I didn't decide that I wanted to go down that path until I was three years mm -hmm. into school. Right. So here I am. <laughs> I'm a junior. I'm a senior by hours, but I'm a junior in my spring semester. You know, when we should be getting ready to graduate, you know, making preparations for the following year to graduate. I'm like, all right. Um, so I don't want to do this mm -hmm. anymore. <laughs> and what do I need to do to to get on this track? And so I, I actually uh, had to go and spend an extra year in school so that I could take all the teacher certification coursework. Uh, because at the time in Texas, there was no such thing as alternative mm. certification. You know, this was back in 1994. And so um, I had to go through a traditional teacher certification program. Um, and so I did that. And then actually, as a part of my teacher training program, we had a class called, I believe it was called something in curriculum. I don't remember. But in that course, it was like an internship. And the internship was spent in a middle school classroom in your subject area, you know, and I had asked my, uh, who, the professor who taught the course who actually became my advisor, I said, Dr. Sykes, please, can I go and work in the high school? You know, I've been working with such and such teacher. I can't remember her name now. Um, you know, I've, I've been working with her and doing these same things. And he's like, nope, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to the middle school. And I was like, okay, fine. And he goes, look, nobody wants to teach middle school. He said, that's why I make you all do this. He says, because you never know. Somebody might discover that they actually really love it. And I was like, okay, whatever, if you say so. And I, and I enjoyed working with the guy that I worked with. His name was Denver McMurray. Um, and the only reason Denver, I remember that is because yeah. his first name was Denver. Um, and he taught, I believe it was eighth grade earth science. And, you know, it was fun getting to, to work with his students. And I got to teach a few lessons and stuff, but I knew then that middle school was not my jam. That was just not, not my thing. 
And then, you know, when I first decided that I wanted to teach, I made myself go work in a daycare center because I knew I figured, and this was my rationale. I figure if I can work with young children, <laughs> then I can work with any children. And I need to do this so that I can find out if this is what I really want to do. And I figured, hey, and I'll make money at the same time. And so I ended up working in this family-run daycare center for, I think, two or three summers. And it was great. I mean, I had a fantastic time. And one of the best classes of kids I ever taught was a group of three-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> and my, my boss at the time, Lois, she said, oh, look, I'm going to give you control of the three-year-old classroom for the summer. And you can do whatever you want as far as curriculum goes. Teach them whatever you want. And so it was fun. I mean, we learned our ABCs. We learned how to write. We learned how to do all different kinds of stuff. And it was fantastic. And we had naps. <laughs> and so it was great. Now, the potty training part, not so cool. But I figured, like I said, if I can work with, with these kids, with littles, then I can wow. work with any kids. And it ended up being the right choice, you know, because I was like, okay, yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Maybe being a doctor was not what I was meant to do at all. <laughs> and so, I mean, I don't regret making that choice. I just regret making oh. it so late, <laughs> you know, but I mean, here I am 25 years later, still doing the same thing just with older kids. And I still, I mean, this year has made it hard <laughs> to love, but I do still love what I do. I do still love what I do. So yeah, yeah, good times. So lots of experience before actually wow. getting my own classroom. Uh, and so I, I'm, as you're saying this, I'm thinking of Tanea's path. Um, <laughs> the uh, the the flight attendant AutoZone uh, path to I think junior junior college doesn't sound so late, does it, Tanea? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I didn't start teaching until I was like I think 30 or 31. Yeah. Um, I graduated from high school in 1993. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, I, anyways, I'm not going to tell like a whole long story. I, my, my father was a teacher. And so I, I constantly was like sitting in on his classes and, you know, watching him grade papers and hearing him talk about the books he was analyzing. And I was, I was really avoiding anything to do with teaching. Cause I just kind of felt like I was immersed in it because of my dad. Um, but when I decided that I wanted to teach, I, um, I, okay. I also, when I was in college, like I had gone in and volunteered in classrooms a little bit here or there. And there were some schools where like, I felt like the kids were older than me. <laughs> I was like, there were, I remember going to one school and the boys were hitting on me at the school. And I was like, Oh, I could never teach <laughs> if like the kids, if the kids think I'm the same age as them that wouldn't go over very well. And then I, I dated a guy who was a teacher anyways. So <laughs> I was like, yeah, teaching is not for me. But then when I, when I decided to do it and I really uh, quit auto, I decided to quit AutoZone. I thought I needed to start substitute teaching so I could be in the classroom more than, you know, that they let you do that, like the student teaching. Um, but I didn't do my student teaching and they let you do observations of a teacher. So I did like a few observations of a biology teacher um, but like, I didn't think that experience was necessarily going to help me a hundred percent. So the good thing is that substitute teaching gave me like a little bit of a reality check. And I realized, oh, there's a lot of things that are happening in schools that we don't really talk about 
in class and it has nothing to do with the papers that we're writing. So I had to deal with like fights and um, rooms were like detention rooms and uh, just all kinds. I realized like classroom management was like a, a huge issue. <laughs> and even though I substitute taught, I still wasn't prepared for it a hundred percent, but at least I got like a, an inkling of what I was going to be getting myself into. So substitute teaching uh, helped me. Yeah. Yeah, you substitute taught and then still decided to teach, and that's uh, I always <laughs> I always wonder about that. But but there's a lot of people who do that path. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I have probably you know I've I've said this a few times on the podcast over the almost five years I've been doing this, but I have a really like untraditional pathway, non-traditional pathway that I took to the classroom, which was. Um, I was sort of floated through college. Um, you know, I did a whole bunch of stuff. I had jobs. I worked in a lab. I worked in a greenhouse. I, um, I, and then my junior year, I took a class where I would go in and tutor um, high school students as part of the class. Like we had to do a certain number of tutoring hours. And then we had like an education class on top of that where I don't even remember what the whole overall point of the class was, but I took it because it, you'd go and tutor in high schools. And I got along great with the high school students. Um, like I went in and made connections and it was like super easy. And I'd go in and like kids would like leave notes on the board where the tutors would come in. And like, if you come in, come to the library or come to this space and find me, I'm going to be working on this. I'd love your help. Da, da, da. I had no problem with connecting with the kids. Um, and everybody else in my group um, would go and like not have anyone work with them. And I kind of think everybody in the group hated me. Um, but, but that was neither here nor there, but it was the first inkling that like, I had something that was a little different about my personality that allowed me, allowed me to connect with high school kids in a way that wasn't like, I had this hidden skill, like this skill that just sort of naturally came to me. And so, um, then I worked, uh, out of that, one of the, the site coordinator asked me if I would work uh, with one of their summer school, school programs. So then I worked with one of their summer school programs there and then I TA'd in college. Um, and then I applied to a program to get my master's and they lost funding for the program. It was a special program at UMass where it was a combination of a business internship and a student teaching experience. It was a very unique kind of thing, but they like lost all their funding mm. the year that I had applied. And so they didn't accept me there, but they accepted me into the graduate school of education, which I really didn't apply to go to a traditional program. Um, so I got accepted and I said, sure, I'll go to grad school. And then that summer I just started applying for teaching jobs um, and I got one. So um, <laughs> my first day teaching, I had had no student teaching, no methods course, no courses on special education, uh, no cooperating teachers, nothing like that. Um, I was 23 years old. No, I was 22 years old. Um, Wow. And I had grown my beard, which I shaved off two months in. And I think I lost every ounce of credibility because I'm kind of baby faced to begin with. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, and I, I was I lucked out in a big, big way that I had a phenomenal department head and a really supportive department. And I was literally the baby of the department and everybody looked out for me and and took me under their wings and and really helped me become a teacher being there. Um, but it was not something, uh, I didn't do it the way it's designed. <laughs> I didn't do it, do, do it the way it was written up. And I had virtually no experience in a classroom before I got my first classroom, um, which was strange. I mean, other than having been a student, like, you know, which had only been like four minutes before I started teaching. 
because <laughs> I was I was very young, um, <laughs> uh, and I wasn't the greatest high school student in the world. So maybe <laughs> I could see all the kids' BS because I got away with all that when I was in high school. So, <laughs> all right, well let's let's talk about the 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 transition because that's one of the nice things I, I had joked again. You know, I, I thought about getting maybe a younger teacher on here, but one of the good things about us is that you know we've stuck it out through what are waves of our career. Like I often describe to people that like you get through your first few years. And if you get through those first few years, you get this like sea change and like you start seeing the career differently. And then you go like five more years and then it happens again. Like you see, you end up seeing your career in different waves. At least that's how I feel. Like I feel like I've been through like three or four different waves of my career over time. And one of the things that happens as you go through your career is you start to learn things. And I'm curious, what's something that you learned through your experience that somebody may have been able to tell you at the beginning um, as you were going that that would have helped you out in your career? So, so Tanea, how about you? Because I know you've talked about um, your um, high level uh, quality first year mentor who uh, was awful. Uh, but, but what are, what are some things that you learned through, <laughs> through your career that you wish you had known or could have been told when you were trained to be a teacher? Okay. So my, my first, my mentor <laughs> that I had that was assigned to me at ASU, I basically asked, asked, would somebody be my mentor? So I don't know if she really wanted to be a mentor. Mm-hmm. She was a great teacher. She just wasn't you know, necessarily available to help me to be a great teacher. Um, so, and I just like you had been, um, I was doing a program. I was working initially in the day and going to school at night. And my father was, he had cancer. And I was like, after class at 10 o'clock at night, I'd be driving to his house to try to go see him. And anyway, so I got thrown into the classroom without doing my student teaching because of my situation um, I was offered a job and I needed the money. Um, a substitute teaching once I quit AutoZone wasn't like paying that mm-hmm. much. And so I honestly didn't really know anything, like anything. All the book reading and the writing the papers, I was good at that, but that wasn't helping me to be a teacher. So I really could have used um, like any kind of information would have been helpful. A, 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 like a well-designed like curriculum with lesson plans and unit plans would have been really nice, but I didn't have any of that. So anyways, um, what I think I really learned was just um, how, how students learn. I had this, I had, I had observed teachers basically who lectured, they cover material, you know, do an activity or something and then like move on and then you go on to the next thing. And then kids memorize things. And that's kind of what I had seen as an example. And so I would say being in the classroom and actually working with students um, and trying to see them actually grow, I understood that kids need a lot of time to wrestle um, with content. And just because you cover something doesn't mean anyone learned anything. doesn't mean they have a deep understanding and they could talk about it. and so I would say that early on, um, just trying to understand like what is learning. Well, I still I'm still trying to understand that, but you know what does learning mean, um, and how do students learn, and what kind of environments or experiences help people to grow? Um, that's something I wish I had had before I had um, started teaching. Um, 
and then my understanding of equity is changing deeply mm. now too because I don't think of equity as this thing that someone does like on their own now. Um, like a teacher has to go learn about equity and diversity or um, a school has to like hire people who look different. Now I see equity as this thing that happens at like all levels of the, the community, the school, individual teachers, um, working with parents, administrators. And so my vision of equity has, um, and my understanding of equity has changed. And I would say that when I first started teaching, it wasn't even part of the conversation, unfortunately. I don't even know if it was, um, I don't know if all institutions deep, deeply value it now. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if then um, in the in the education uh, programs, if that was a deep um, concern. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. I, I would say it, it was not something that was talked about um, really much i think that um gender equity nope. um was something that was discussed earlier uh it's sort of career-wise i i think that discussions of of gender equity and then um you know gender and sexual orientation equity came up earlier in my career before you know uh racial justice and racial equity which definitely has um you know you could make an argument that the 90s we were being told to be you know, uh, to not see race, you know, I think that, um, and so coming out of education programs in the nineties and, you know, early two thousands, that, that was probably still the, the, the norm, even if people understood, wait, maybe we shouldn't have been saying this. I still think that there was a hangover from that language of the nineties of to not seeing race, um, and not really open space to discuss that. Um, so I'd agree with that. Um, as you t say that, it makes me think, so wonder for Lee, um, if Lee experienced what I did um, mm -hmm. back in the 90s when we were getting our, our thing, I would, we'd go to these classes and they would talk about, oh, students are not an empty vessel and here's all of these educational theories. And then you'd go and work with teachers in the school and they'd be like, yeah, that's this, all of that education theory is garbage. Like, um, like almost like a massive dismissal <laughs> by the veteran teachers of education theory that we were getting. So like, for me, it was like, uh, that's how it happens in books, but this is how real education works. And a lot of that stuff, the theory came back mm -hmm. and is, is in place now, but was not being incorporated in the things I was watching. So, um, I don't know if that's your experience, Lee. Yeah, I was going to say did, doing teacher training in the 90s, you know, in the mid mid 90s was was definitely a far cry from what the kids who are going through traditional teacher training, you know, programs mm -hmm. do now. Um, you know, just to kind of speak to what Tanea was saying about, you know, learning about equity. The only you know, the only time I can remember equity even being remotely addressed in my uh, coursework was my I want to say it was my last year of school and I wasn't taking this course because it was a course only open to um, freshman students, but I was basically a group facilitator for the course and the students had to read um, Tracy Kidder's book, Among School Children, and they also had to read uh, Kozal's um, Savage Inequalities. And so those two books, I don't know if y'all are familiar with either one of them, but they, they focus more on socioeconomic inequity rather than racial inequities, gender inequities, things of that nature. And so 
that was the closest that my teacher program came to to addressing any of that stuff. And it wasn't even a part of the teacher training program, which it should have been. Um, and in fact, I, I generally, like I have a, a former student of mine right now who's getting an education minor as a part of his biology degree. And he yet he claims he doesn't want to teach. <laughs> but, but I have a feeling that Graham is going to teach whether he wants to or not. Um, and he asked me for some some reading material. And I said, look, you need to read these two books for sure. In addition to, mm-hmm. and I gave him a long list. And um, and I said, these are actually pretty good old oldies, <laughs> but goodies, right? Like they're going to teach you about, you know, here's how, you know, school can be for students who don't have a lot of money, who don't come from money or whatever. Um, I said, but you also need to learn about what it's like to be a student of color going to school now. And you need to learn about, you know, all of these other things. And so I don't think, I don't know how those, those topics are addressed now um, in any kind of teacher training program. I have a feeling that they're not because when we see people coming out of these programs, it's, they, they don't have, you know, any like grounding in learning about how to address inequity, you know, and not just those three major categories. I mean, you're also talking about, you know, the types of, you know, um, instructional design that can be inequitable, you know, grading practices that can be inequitable. I mean, because I think, you know, equity and, and inequity both cover so much ground, right? It's not just, you know, these demographic characteristics that we tend to, to think of. It's a lot of other things too. And I think that, you know, that's one thing that I wish <laughs> had been addressed a little bit better. But to speak to your point about in the 90s, you know, it was just kind of kept down mm-hmm. on the down low. You also have to remember too, that affirmative action was a thing back then, remember? Well, because that's when... Right. That's when people started to, you know, hiring practices changed, admissions for college practices changed, you know, because of affirmative action. And so I don't think that, you know, anything was addressed at that time due in part to that also, you know, because it's like, well, you know, we can't, you know, separate based on this or that. And so we're just going to treat everybody the same. And I just, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't ignore, you can't not acknowledge someone's, you know, you know, race. You can't, you can't just say, oh, well, I don't see color. I don't see that. No, that's the problem. You don't see color. You don't see, you know, all of these things. And if you're not seeing that, then you're not acknowledging that, you know, there, there are problems that exist for this person in their world that don't exist for you. And for them, that is a difficult daily thing that they have to deal with. I mean, and this is pretty fresh in my mind because we were, I was in a meeting on Friday with my principal and a group of students and, and um, there were some pretty heated conversations. Let's just put it that way. Um, Without going into any detail, there were some pretty heated conversations between the students and my principal about some things. Um, And I agreed with the students. (laughs) I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. These things are things you need to start learning more about and addressing. And, and dear Mr. Sir, this is not their responsibility Mm -hmm. to teach you these things. So, you know, I, I really hope that teacher training programs now do a better job of, of addressing those as they apply to the classroom. You know, because these are issues that, 
you know, our students can't leave yeah. at the door when they come into our rooms. And for a lot of, you know, for our teachers of color, they can't either. You know, they can't either. Yeah. I also do think that so. um, the students, and I can speak this at my school, the students' um, advocacy, they're, they're speaking up, they're... They're, they're de- demanding a seat yes. at the table when decisions are being made um, is definitely gr- greater now than it, than it was, sh- you know, 20, 25 years ago. Yes. Um, I, I don't know that the the structures of this, I think the that fortunately the structures of the school system have also created some space where kids can speak up. Whereas I don't know that that would have, <laughs> 25 years ago, I don't know how that would have gone over. I don't think it would have, to be honest, because, you know, if you think about and think about our own high school experience, you know, because you and I probably graduated high school at the same time, students didn't really have much agency, right? We were best seen and not heard. And now that is certainly not the case, you know, especially in schools where hopefully the administrators are very open and receptive to student feedback. You know, back then, I don't know that, you know, if my students who had this conversation with my principal Friday had tried to have the same conversation with him 30 years ago, God, that hurts to say that, 30 years ago, if the conversation would have even happened. Or they would have got, they would have gotten suspended. Like, yeah, yeah, they would have gotten in trouble. You know, I really do believe that they would have gotten in trouble because 30 years ago, people just weren't, I don't think they were ready. For students to be self-advocates, um, they certainly weren't ready for students of color to be self-advocates, um, you know, because let's face it, I live in the South and here it was harder for anybody of color to be able to speak up for themselves and to say, hey, I feel like I'm being done wrong, you know, and you need to do something about this. And I don't think that that could have happened. That would have been possible 30 years ago. But the other thing, too, is that I don't think the sense of urgency was quite as strong back then, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to think of what the political climate of the of the time was, you know, and it it certainly wasn't centered around, you know, the same types of things that we have going on in the world now. You know, it just it wasn't the same, you know. Yeah. So, well, I, I think um, this is a yeah. I mean, it, it's it's been an interesting sort of side side chain off of what we were originally yeah. thinking about. <laughs> but I think it is it, it's hard to it's hard to wrap my mind around sort of the 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 idea of the way students speak because uh, I had I mean I had students come to me in office hours a few weeks ago. Um, to talk about something that I don't know that, and I don't know that they would have come and, and had that conversation with me um, in the Mm -hmm. past. And I don't know how much it is the space that we've created for students to do that versus this, the, the nature of the students. And I'm sure it's all wrapped up structurally. Um, The structural problems existed back then. The structural problems persist today. Mm -hmm. um, But maybe we've started to learn how to create space to have conversations about the structural inequities. I, I think this right. is the best way I can come up with it. Cause I don't think the world is any different. I mean, the, the fact is, is that if you know uh, the, the, the things that are going on today in terms of inequities have been going on, like it's not, these are not new things. They're visual, how, how visible they are, right. are completely different to, to people who are yes. 
you know, people like me to, to people who um, are in a suburban bubble. I, I wasn't exposed to the level of inequity. It was easy to check out. I mean, that was the, that is the nature of privilege. Like is that you were unaware of these things and you had the privilege of not tuning in. And I think that those are, while not impossible to do, I think it, our students are more aware of what's going on in the world and we've created space for them to have a voice to talk about it. Um, and hopefully that is a step along the lines to making things a little bit better. Um, right. And maybe that's something else that, that needs to be part of teacher training programs somehow is, you know, how do you, how do you create these spaces for students to express, you know, express grievance, express concern, you know, without consequence, right? Like, you know, because a lot of times I think students don't speak up because they're afraid they're going to get in trouble for some reason, yeah. you know, because of the way school just happens by nature to be, yeah. right? Like, it's like, it's almost like if you say something that's out of line, you know, with whatever's going on at the time, you're going to get in trouble for it, right? I mean, because everything seems punitive, but I think it because you, you have to create an environment that allows students to to communicate the things that concern them and that bother them with that, you know, and let them know, okay, hey, this is a safe place for you to say this, you know, you know, we're not going to, you know, you're not going to be punished for, you know, speaking your mind or, or whatever, you know, we're actually going to listen to what you have to say, because we value you as a person in this, you know, within this organization. So I, I think that's so important. I'm sorry. I disagree a hundred percent with what you're saying. Like people need to be able to express themselves and say what they think and why express their, you know, talk about their experiences without being, you know, well, I mean, and I wonder, I mean, to bring it back to what we, you know, you brought up earlier today about like the modes of teaching. And I know Lee, you, you wanted to bring this up, you know, when we started teaching, Mm -hmm. like we were taught about how to best transmit information. Like it was all about the lecture and in the lecture, the students have no voice. Like the most important person in that room was me as the teacher and the stuff that I had prepared to bring into that room and to speak. And the truth is, is that's not how I run my classroom today. Like, and, Mm -hmm. and so I know Lee, you were, you were thinking about that. Like, uh, you know, what yeah. w- would you tell like young Lee Ferguson about about learning it in the classroom? Oh, my gosh, there's so much <laughs> I'd go back and redo. I mean, I tell my students all the time. I go, look, I feel bad for the kids I taught my first year. You know, I really do. I, I wish I could go back in time and apologize to them because I know so much more now about teaching, about how kids learn, about how brains work and how they don't work. And everything I was taught you know, almost everything I was taught in my teacher training is nothing that they teach now, <laughs> you know, because it's so counter to what the research shows us, you know, and what brain research tells us about learning and what, what are, you know, best practices for learning and transmitting information. It, you know, it's like my, my notes say, let the kids do the talking, hmm. you know, because whoever's doing the most talking is doing the most learning. And I tease my kids about this sometimes. I'm like, look, y'all, <laughs> if I'm doing all the talking, I'm the only one doing the learning. <laughs> and, and that sometimes will get them to come out of their shells and say stuff, even if it's in the chat and Zoom, you know, but I really believe that that's true. You know, because if I'm the one doing all the talking, then what are what are you learning? I mean, you this, know, what are you? This, it's like you said, Tanea, kids have to have a chance to wrestle. They have right? to wrestle with their ideas, and uh, I think that this also we should just do a whole different like episode on 
the different like ways that education even goes about. Like there's different schools or different schools are run in different ways. Right. But even like mm-hmm. the schedule, the schedule, <laughs> this whole idea of 45 minute blocks, seven classes or eight right. classes a day, like who came up with that and why did they come up with that? But like that, that's not even conducive to people actually having the space Mm-mm. and the time that they need to process information. So I right. sometimes, even if I feel like I've grown as a teacher, sometimes I feel like I'm so stuck in this old system that I'm not able to like do what I possibly could do if I, if, if the structures of how the school is designed, if those aren't not going to change, like, why do we have to have one teacher in a classroom either? I work much better when I get to talk to other adults. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, and it's like, you know, as much as we can innovate, I think what you're saying, you know, what you're, what you're saying is as long as the school structure stays static, how are we truly innovative? You know, are we as innovative as we could be within that structure? I don't think so. You know, because I think that at some, at some point, the structure itself has to have some change too. If you're going to allow everybody in the building, teachers, students, admins to grow to their fullest potential. And I think that that takes a lot of courage at the systemic standpoint to allow those changes to occur, right? Somebody in a power, a position of power has to say, you know what, this isn't working. (laughs) This isn't working. And what if we tried this? You know, what about this? Why don't we give this a shot? You know, and I mean, I wish that that more administrators would speak Mm. up and do that. I really do, you know. And I don't know how easy it is to do that. I don't, I mean, I know it, you know, it's, it's probably scary to think about for some folks, but I really think that if more admins would step forward and say, you know what, we want to try something different for our kids and, and see how this works, you know, and the bad thing about experimenting like that in a school is that you often have to wait a year to to see what the results are. Well, I think, I think we actually saw a lot of the uh, for me i felt like we saw a lot of backslide this year when we went into emergency mode and things were set up mm-hmm. based off of the assumption and again think about it the idea of you were somebody who came up when we came up ali and then 12 15 mm-hmm. years ago you left the classroom and so you hadn't changed your practice oh, wow. in in you know 12 15 minutes and so your image of what the classroom looks like is what the classroom mm-hmm. looked like in 2008, 2006. And that is how you view education. Even though you've observed other people, your practice is, you know, in kryptonite um, (laughs) from 2006 or 2008. And you know what it was like to prepare for the classroom based off of that world. If that is the case, that's how you get a structure where you have the classes sort of set up the way we do. And a lot of the things that I was told really we're not about how to teach in a modern way using the technology mm-hmm. tools, but rather to teach like it was 2000, like how to transmit information, how to transmit material efficiently. It was, it was a very backslide to me in terms of that, that past year. And um, I, when you said, I wish a lot of administrators, my, my, my finish to that sentence is taught a class. <laughs> Yes. I used when I used to want to be a principal, which was a really long time ago when I was a very young teacher and didn't know any better. (laughs) 
<laughs> I used to want to, I used to want to be a principal and I always told myself, well, when I become a principal, I'm yeah, going to teach at yeah. least one class, you know, just to keep one foot in that world, you know? And I actually was having this, this thought conversation with myself today. I'm like, so if principals are supposed to be learning <laughs> leaders, how current are they at yeah. pedagogy, mm. right? Like what we're actually doing, like, do they do any kind of professional development that allows them to kind of peek into what it's like to do what we do? Or are they just observing us because they have to, you know, and yes, I'm sure they learn as they're going through, but that's yeah. not the same as actually being, you know, knee deep in, in, in the waters. I, you know what I mean? And, and so it I, just made me yeah. wonder. I almost posted that as a tweet today. <laughs> like so learning leaders. Well, and I, I think there's a I think there's a, a double-edged sword, and I say this in the most respectful way of the administrators who I really like. I think and mm -hmm. and and especially people who have not been running a class now for many years, um, they can very much mm -hmm. appreciate the work that you're doing because they used to do similar work, yet not really right. understand the intellectual shifts you've made over those years. It is almost like they're seeing the mm -hmm. leap without seeing the process because they have changed their jobs. They've changed hats. Their their process right. is a process about doing a very different job. And, and I don't know that it is fair for an administrator who left the classroom six years ago, eight years ago, 10 years ago to understand the mm -hmm. learning journey that you're on as a classroom mm -hmm. teacher as you move forward. Um, and this sort of speaks a little bit to, to the thing that I was, I was saying that I wish I, I wish I learned this and it probably took me, you know, many, many years to feel differently about being observed. I don't know how you felt early on in your career, but I always felt like I had a really good first year where I really trusted my, my, my principal. But then I, I used to get a little tense about being observed by the principal or by somebody else. And I used to get really tense about having somebody in my room. And it probably wasn't until I was, you know, eight or 10 years into my career that it didn't bother me if people walked in or out of my room and came to observe me. But early on, I was very tense on that. And I actually realized I wish the entire system was set up differently so that I was going into other rooms and other people were coming into my room. And just like Tanea said, I wish that there was like this professional conversation, space professional conversation about what's going on in my room, that it wasn't, I wasn't siloed. And moreover, I wish it wasn't just with the people in my department. Like as much as I like all of the mm -hmm. people in my department and I learned that for the most part, the only people who are ever in my room are my department head and other biology teachers. And not even the chemistry teachers or the, like, sometimes I have other people from my department who come in and that's just because I'm annoying and I tell people about stuff and they, they feel like, oh, I should come see you. But I, I mean, how often do you, I have an English teacher in my room or a history teacher in my room? And how often do you spend time in a history right. teacher's classroom? Like watching how a history teacher runs a Socratic seminar or looks at primary documents in a history class or, you know, a world mm -hmm. language class and how they how they're, you know, doing connections or having kids working group work and how they organize their space. And I just, I wish that, I wish that both structurally it was set up in a way that I could have done those things, but I also wish that culturally we weren't siloed. So that was just like a natural practice. Um, and Lee, you're like me, you're in a giant building and I know, and, and, today, oh, yeah. and or buildings in your case. Um, and, 
No, oh, it's yeah. actually one building. Well, you, you said, believe it or not, you said yeah, your freshman across building. the street. That's a <laughs> right. And today you right. always talk about how like it's hard for colleagues. You you have been working with colleagues mm-hmm. to do uh you know some co curricular stuff or to partner with stuff, but we don't have. It's like I, I don't know if your schools are totally different, but it's not easy to work with other teachers during a normal day. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's not like um. The t- it has to be purposely the time and space has to be created for that to happen mm. and when everyone's so busy just getting through the content <laughs> I got to get through this chapter I got to get through this stuff then really you know if it's not some really some type of intentional thing that's coming from the top um, down it's not it's not going to happen very often yeah so you know I I do think it happens sometimes um, but it people have to really want it to happen and they have to create space outside of their normal maybe work hours to make it happen and and so i think that's why it doesn't happen as often as it could yeah and i could say i'm i mean my my school district does have a program that is called teacher to teacher that you can sign up for and you can go do but um the the threshold to signing up and to doing it and to being part of the program it like you know i like i've got a lot of stuff to do and it it's yes is it available in the school yes can you do it um have i had a couple of other teachers come in and observe my class that way yes but it is it is culturally something that is part of our school but it's not ingrained in the culture of our work like it is an exceptional thing to do it is not an expected thing to do and i think that 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 needs to change i think you know we need to have some shifts and Maybe people are all going to be like wanting to be in the same space, you know, <laughs> once, once you can, like everybody's like, Oh, can we please be in the same space together? Um, I, uh, uh, I, don't I mean, it would be awesome to be able to do more yeah. cross-curricular things, you know, like one of the, one of my huge pipe dreams is actually to work with our culinary arts teacher about that and do do like a unit on the biochemistry of cooking like i think that would be mm-hmm. so much she she you could spend like i literally did like yes. a like a extra like little course thing where we spent like two uh-huh. weeks just talking about cheese there's so many things you could yeah, do with cheese because there's so much stuff but you can do with cheese, like the microbiome of different cheeses and and like you know talk about the maillard reaction with browning on meat and on bread and you know cooking you know eggs and making emulsions with you know making an aioli and like it would be so much fun to do but i don't know <laughs> that we have you know the time or the space to do it i mean i i, I was telling one of my teaching partners the other day because there's gonna be three of us teaching mm. ib bio next year and i said i have this super crazy idea for doing you know biochemistry as a you know a culinary type thing just because it's so applicable and i could still teach within the confines of the curriculum right and one of my partners is like can we eat it (laughs) (laughs) and i was like um yeah (laughs) we can eat it (laughs) it's like why why do it as a culinary thing if you're not gonna be able to eat it All right. Well, let's let's you know? get to our let's get to our last question here. Look, it's, we don't have Ryan here, and we're going to go long. Um, <laughs> can't blame can't can't blame Ryan on it's going long this time. But uh, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, so let's think about it. We're we're now we're gonna we're gonna get into it. We're gonna structurally change things. So let let's do the structural change. And I want you to think about one support that. Um, that you think that an early career teacher should have as part of their support that they're not currently getting 
in their career. So, so Tanea, well, actually, I think I have Lee up first. All right, Lee, uh, what are you going to do first to change culturally for these teachers? I think one of the things that I would really like to do is just sit down with them and talk to them about, you know, culturally relevant teaching strategies. How can we work for equity in the classroom? You know, maybe kind of tease out what do they know? What do they understand about these things? You know, and how can we, you know, be more intentional about implementing these types of strategies in our classroom so that every kid can learn regardless of, you know, color, socioeconomic status, you know, um, what's the word that I keep hearing now that I'm trying to work into my vocabulary, their neurotypical, mm. I guess, status, um, you know, all of that, just kind of wrap all of those things up into one, because it, it, to be a great teacher, I think you really have to accommodate for every single student that walks through your door, right? And, and, and if you're going to reach every single kid, then you've got to have some way that you're going to be able to do that. And, you know, it would be great to be able to sit down with, you know, a brand new fresh off the turnip truck teacher and say, okay, here are some things that I have learned. Let's see what you know, or don't know, or maybe have misconceptions about. And let's try to get you to a place where you can start reaching all of mm. your kids. How about you, Tanea? How do you want to change it? Okay, outside of like making my own school, because <laughs> at this point, I I feel like I can't complain and then not not try to do something different. So eventually I need to open my own school. But I think to start out, like it would be really helpful, um, at least for science teachers, if we could um, actually, I had a methods in biology course, a a methods in biology course. And once, a, once I don't know, a few hours here or there, we actually talked about biology. <laughs> um, I think it would have, like if I had taken a modeling instruction, like two week, three week workshop, where we actually engaged in like going through different lessons and units and labs and Socratic questioning and whiteboarding and consensus building, um, experimental design. If I had, if I had actually done a three-week course like that before I started teaching, um, not necessarily from AMTA, but like any uh, any other type of molecular biology type of any mm. kind of course like that, right? Um, and really been in the in the perspective of a student to kind of see what are the experience the students going to be feeling and experiencing when they go through these um, discussions and activities, and um, when they're collecting data, and how does it feel to talk about something? and not be the expert and have to share your thoughts in front of everybody else. Like if I had done that, I would have been much better prepared to provide that for my students um, as a teacher. And I, and I don't understand why universities are not creating, like why can't the people who are doing the education courses who, you know, whether it's biology education or science education or whatever, um, why are why are they not teaching in the way like they have research at the <laughs> universities? They know what's effective, but then they're not teaching us in the way that's effective. Um, and so I think that would be the most helpful thing, like actually delving into like the practice of learning, um, the way that you you know that it's going to be effective at helping your students to learn and grow. Mm. 
Yeah, that's that's interesting. It's one of those conversations that when you go to a PD that's uh, like tiered between university and high school uh, teachers, it, it's, uh, I remember being at uh, a Pogel workshop. Gosh, it was probably about five years ago, and I was I was with uh, I was with Don Pickerington, who recently retired, who's who's a great teacher from the Boston area, and he was like, "This is just like." good practice like learning the pogle stuff was good and learning how to implement pogle was good but like a lot of the things that were blowing the minds of the college professors were like how to organize group work um, <laughs> like <laughs> like asking students questions rather than lecturing it was like it was just one of those it was kind of one of those things like the, the i remember don turning to me and going like i don't know why these people are being blown out of the water by like really basic teaching but um but the fact is, is that, um, and I remember Desi uh, Demova uh, saying this, that you don't get any training. Like when you teach college, like you train to become a scientist. Mm -hmm. They didn't teach you how to teach it. They, they just, you know, and so the only people at the college level who, who learn how to teach are people who are trained how to teach. And many people in many universities, they get very little support, if zero support in learning how to teach. But I agree with you that it should, uh, <laughs> it should change. Um yeah. For me, one of the things I've always sort of wondered about is what we do with our new teachers um, professionally and how we sort of say, well, you know, they're 23, they're 24, they're 25, they're 26, they're fountains of energy. Let's crush them with as many different things as we can possibly do. So what we're going to do is we're going to have them teach uh, three different classes. Uh, we'll give them a mentor, which means that they have to schedule additional mentoring time. Plus they got to go to these extra mentoring meetings. Uh, plus it'd be really great if they could coach, uh, maybe coach a couple of teams and you know what, maybe they'd be an advisor as well. Um, and you know, we'll have them do all of that their first year. And I always have been wondering like, why, why do we do that to them? And so if we want them to be in part of the school community, like coaching and being clever, that's great. Why does a first year teacher teach the same load as I teach as a, you know, veteran? Um, why don't they teach mm -hmm. fewer classes? Why don't they have as part of their, like, why don't we invest in them? Like when we hire a new teacher, why don't we invest in a new teacher to make their professional growth part of their teaching assignment? Like they already, we don't pay them as much money, right? They never, a first year teacher doesn't make the money that a, a mm -hmm. veteran does. And because of the way we pay teachers. So if they're going to make that first year teacher money, why don't we have them teach, you know, in my school, we teach five classes or if, unless you teach labs like I do. Um, but, you know, uh, let's have them teach four classes and one period a day they have, maybe that's when they're mentoring takes place. Maybe that's the period that they're going to observe other teachers. Maybe that's the period where they can go to meetings, you know, with the administrators and stuff like that and make it part of their professional day that, that they're going to have a little less on their plate in terms of those, those work hour requirements. So they, they really are, they can have more time in their day to spend teaching and we can take care of their mm -hmm. administrative and other things as part of their day. Well, and it could be part of their professional development happens during that time, too. So they're not having to do it outside Absolutely. of school hours, right? Like, you know, all of the beginning of the school year stuff, you know, because I don't know how it is in y'all's schools. But I know in my district, when a teacher is hired, regardless of how much experience they have, they have a week long um, new teacher orientation you know, where they get introduced to the school district, they learn about their benefits, they mm -hmm. do all that stuff. 
But then supposedly, and I don't know how accurate this is, or, you know, just because the, the teachers that I know who've gone through it were not first year teachers, but they supposedly learn how to use like our LMS, our grade book and all of that. But then because it's happening so quickly before school starts, it's not really the 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 training doesn't translate well to actual practice <laughs> and so wouldn't it be better to give them that training as they're actually using those tools so that they're having constant you know practice at yeah. it every single day right because this is what they're doing to manage their classes it's like okay well today you're going to learn how to do this in canvas and you're going to do it during this period because this is the time that you have scheduled for you know professional learning yeah. whatever you know <laughs> I mean, to me, it just makes more sense to do it that way, but they didn't ask me to <laughs> yeah. design So when Tanea opens so, her school, you know. that's, what, <laughs> that's how we run <laughs> there it. There you go. Well, there you my, go. my new school at Avenues, they actually don't pay based on your years of experience. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of scary to take a job where I'm like, wait, look, I've been teaching 15 years. What do you mean you're not paying me for 15? Anyways, but um, they, they, they pay you based on like your spheres of influence. So their whole philosophy of how they pay and how they train. Um, and I, 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 I think the first time we get there, it's going to be two weeks of training, but the school's just opening up. Right. So like the, the middle school and the high school is just opening up. So that's something, it's a new school, but um, it's going to be interesting to see how this translates and like how, how it actually works out. Um, and then they, I think they make you do a lot of training with people in other departments, like since it's a lot of projects, mm -hmm. project based learning. But well, I, I, you know, I can't really speak on it until I actually get there, but yeah. we'll see what happens. That's, it's exciting. I mean, it's, starting a new school, there is no you're, you're not going to be immersed into somebody else's culture. Um, you're going to be part of building it. So that's, a, that's another sort of interesting challenge that new teachers have to have to grapple with. <laughs> So, all right. Well, uh, we'd love your feedback. If you want to share with us your thoughts, tell us your terrible jobs, how many of your coworkers got arrested. Uh, if you want to <laughs> tell us about your uh, teacher training experience or how, how, uh, how I still have a job teaching after all these years in spite of my lack of preparation or, or any of that, uh, you can tweet at us at uh, Life of the School. Uh, share your thoughts. We'd love to hear it. Uh, you can also subscribe to Life of the School on your podcast player of choice. Uh, you can also go to patreon.com if you like what we do and you want to chip in a buck or two a month and go to patreon.com slash lots. I post my show notes there as well as on lifeoftheschool.org. Uh, music on this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and X Magicians. And uh, as I said before, you can follow us on Twitter at Life of the School. So uh, it is, we're into May for this episode. And uh, for some of us, this is going to be uh, the second to last episode before the school year ends. So some of this, we'll talk to you later at the end of May when uh, Lee is going to be basti basking in uh, being done school. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but I'll be going back the first week of August. So. <laughs> All right. We'll see everybody soon. <laughs>